0: Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm Joe Casey, and fall is upon us. And with that, a lot of our day-to-day routines get adjusted. It's getting dark earlier already, and daylight savings time is not too far away. So why not use the change in seasons to take a look at some of your habits? Let's start with one that's really important, sleep. And today's guest is indeed an expert on sleep. Dr. Raj Dasgupta was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Raj is Southern California's official hometown MD, practicing medicine at the University of Southern California. His life mission is to educate patients, students, and aspiring doctors to better patient care. Other than that, he's just a regular dude. Unlike the rest of us regular dudes, Dr. Raj completed his internal medicine residency at Michigan State. Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship at Columbia University, St. Luke's and Roosevelt Hospital, and Sleep Medicine Fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital. During his training, Dr. Raj received numerous awards, including Resident of the Year, Fellow of the Year, and the Director's Award for Research. After his training, Dr. Raj worked at Abington Hospital, which is affiliated with Jefferson University in Philadelphia, where he received the Faculty Teacher of the Year. Dr. Raj is currently a professor at the University of Southern California, USC, and received the Faculty Teaching Award for the last three consecutive years. He is quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine, and is an active clinical researcher, and he currently teaches aspiring doctors how to prepare well for the medical exams. Dr. Raj currently appears on various media platforms and TV shows, such as The Doctors, Bill Nye Saves the World, ESPN, and You Can Do Better. Check out the links in the show notes for additional information on Dr. Raj Baskupta. Dr. Raj, thanks for spending some time with us today.
1: Oh, you're super welcome. I'm excited to be on your podcast.
0: So people listening have just heard your bio but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, about your life outside of work.
1: Sure. Let's kind of divide it up into little pie sections. So the first thing is going to be Dr. Raj, is the family guy, and I am super duper blessed. I have a beautiful wife who is a rheumatologist. who's my better half and makes awesome decision makings for our family. I have three awesome kids. My oldest is Mina, my 10-year-old. My youngest is Sadie, who's three. And right in the middle is my boy. His name is Aiden. And Aiden has autism. And it's pretty moderate to severe-ish. But I love him dearly. And I always mention it because I just want to give a shout out, not just to kids who have learning disabilities and autism, but for the parents. I think it's super hard. And people don't realize what moms and dads have to go through day-to-day when you have a kid with special needs. So I always go out of my way to, to mention that. I have my mom and dad who I love dearly. And my dad, this is not a sad podcast, but my dad's got Alzheimer's and I always want to like just give shout outs to all the caregivers out there that are dealing with loved ones who has Alzheimer's. That disease sucks big time and it's super hard on family members. But as far as like the other things I do, I am super jazzed to be an educator. I love teaching so much. I've been teaching medical students that do something called the United States Medical License Exam. There's multiple steps. I've been doing that for 20 years for a company called Kaplan, who I love. I work for a company called Elsevier, who took a huge leap of faith in me to publish books. And I have actually two book series. One's called Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. You can't see this awesome fist pump I made. And I also have Case Reports, Beyond the Pearls. And yeah, total I have 8 books out there and I just love teaching so much with that. And I also have my own super dork filled medical podcast that do stuff. The other side of me when I'm not teaching 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 is actually I try to do stuff in media as much as possible. I'm super lucky blessed combinations of both because I was on the Doctors TV show for 7 seasons. I my Big breakthrough was with a show called Chasing the Cure, which Ann Curry was the host. It only had one season, but still, that was so awesome. And then I was doing stuff locally for ABC7 News. I was part of the doc squad when COVID was at its peak. I just do a lot of stuff. And I really try to combine media and being nice and funny and teaching to one big, big, big burrito with all those things put together. But on a non medical, all that kind of stuff note, what do I love? I love movies. I'm a big Star Wars geek. You could always quiz me on the Holy Original Trilogy and I'll know my stuff pretty well, but that's Dr. Raj in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) That is quite a list. And that brings us to the topic of, of, of sleep and rest. You've got to get proper rest to do all those things. And curious, what should we know about the impact of inadequate sleep?
1: My opening line is always sleep affects every single organ in the body. So I always kind of throw the question right back at the host and say, you tell me what organ you want and I'll tell you what happens. So of course, we're the big ones. We always think about the brain. We think the brain about in a medical sense, in a psychological sense, when we talk about having being sleep deprived or not getting good quality and quantity sleep hey, it adds things like to depression. It adds to things like anxiety. It's gonna be a risk factor for things like stroke. So it's horrible when we talk about the heart. Needless to say that when we talk about that poor quality and quantity sleep, yes, you're gonna be at a higher risk for things like coronary artery disease, things like heart failure, things like arrhythmias. And the way I kind of summarize it is that at nighttime, what happens to our blood pressure and our heart rate Well, they tend to take a break. They tend to dip down a little bit so we could take the stress off the heart. that's beating so hard during the day. But when you have poor sleep at night, you're never giving your body a chance to rest, especially if you have undiagnosed sleep disorders such as obstructive sleep apnea that affects 30 million people in the United States of America. Everyone has some kind of insomnia, but of course, chronic insomnia with sleep deprivation is gonna be horrendous when we talk about the body. And right now, I think this is important to bring it up, is vaccines. With the winter coming up, we're gonna be pushing influenza, RSV has now become a vaccine that we're getting more and more if you're immunocompromised and older in age. And of course, COVID, when is COVID not in the news? But there were studies that show that when you get vaccined and you are sleep deprived, well, maybe that vaccine may not work as much or as good as you want it to, which is kind of scary. And there were studies about that in the past. And not to mention with winter coming up, I know last winter, all we talked about was the triple gimmick. But now hopefully it's not looking good for COVID this year. It's getting a, going up there again, but getting good sleep, it affects your immune system. Whether we're talking it down at the cellular level and what happens when we talk about inflammatory proteins or just in general, many times have you not had good sleep, then you wake up with that little tickle in your throat, that little runny nose. So you want to do everything to keep you healthy. So to summarize what we just talked about, yes, sleep definitely affects what happens during the day. And just to throw this is sort of a scary stat that I always mentioned that we always tend to focus what happens during the day, the pillars of good health. Now, are you exercising? Hey, what are you eating? But remember, we spend a third of our lives sleeping. And what's my stat is that if we all live to the nice age of 90 without dementia, that's 30 years of our life that we need to focus on because we're sleeping that time. So yes, I'm glad we're doing this podcast and we definitely should focus on nighttime sleep.
0: And it's always hard to follow a scary stat, but let me try. How about the flip side, the marketing side? What are the key benefits of investing in that proper sleep over that length of time?
1: Yeah. Let me start off by like kind of mentioning quality and quantity because I know I kind of brought those two up in the previous question. So quantity sleep means how much sleep you should get. And that really depends on your age. And, and don't worry, Joe, I'm not going to ask your age, you know, but uh, I was going to say that when you're super uber young, even like newborn, infant, toddler, adult, I mean, you need lots and lots and lots of sleep. And even as we get older, I mean, you still need the same amount of sleep as I do. Meaning that I'm kind of in that seven to nine hours of sleep sweet spot being around eight. You still need that when you get older. So when we talk about duration, are you getting the right amount of sleep based upon your age per se? Quality sleep means are you going to the deep stage of non-REM, which we call delta sleep or slow wave sleep. and you need to get to REM sleep where you have these vivid HD TV-like dreams. So these two sleep stages put together, N3 known as Delta Sleep and REM, hey, they help out with memory, they help out with cognition. So you need those two cues to do well. So if you get those two cues, well, then you're gonna help out your body in the sense that let's talk about what will happen during the day. You're gonna be on your A game You're going to have better memory consolidation. You're not going to be as agitated. And I'm going to tell you, in this day and age, who is not grouchy? I'm telling you, I mean, road rage. I think I just saw three episodes of road rage on the way to work today. So it definitely affects out your mood. And you want to be in a good mood during this time. And I also say your health. And if you're going to focus so much on taking your meds appropriately, you're going to focus so much on having the right diet, remember, sleep what happens at night affects what happens during the day and vice versa. So yes, it is super duper important in many regards.
0: So you mentioned age. What changes about sleep as we get older?
1: Oh man, where to begin? Where to begin? I would say this. So as all of us get older, sleep is just as important. But when we talk about Let's start off with the stages of sleep. Non-REM has what we call N1, N2, and N3. and stands for non-REM. So we really want that deep stage N3, which I was just talking about. But you know what? As you get older, of course, you get less of it, whether you like it or not. And that stinks, right? REM sleep, I just said, you want it. You know what happens naturally when you get older? You get less of it. So just our architecture, when we talk about our stages of sleep, we're skewed not to get as much as the essential stages as we want. Then when we talk about markers of sleep, so what would I call these markers of my sleep? Number one, sleep onset latency. That sounds kind of dorky, but it just means, well, how fast do you fall asleep? As we get older, it's difficult to initiate sleep. Then if I want to be dorky, there's something called a WASO, wake after sleep onset. And all of us should wake up throughout the night. It's normal. No one sleeps throughout the whole night. For me, I like to wake up twice (laughs) to go to the bathroom, but I go to bed right away. So nothing's wrong with me. But as you get older, you have more awakenings and arousals at nighttime, and it's hard to fall back asleep. So and then as we get older, I'm not just battling primary sleep disorders. I'm not just battling with insomnia. I'm battling with all the other comorbidities that happen as you get older. Congestive heart failure, if you're a smoker, COPD, aches and pains. In fact, dude, I got some low back pain for no reason. I hate getting old, you know? So it's aches and pains at night that you're going through. And then some of you heard this before, Joe, I'm sure many people who when they get older are like, look at their medication list. They're like, where did these, all these meds come from? all these meds are going to affect your sleep. And they don't even have to be the crazy antidepressant, antipsychotic meds. What if if you're on a water pill for your heart issues? I mean, you would be peeing all the time during the night. Or maybe you have undiagnosed prostate issues. That's going to make you run to the bathroom at night. So there are all these different things. So whether it's medication, comorbidities, we're set up to have not the most essential stages as we get older. And one more thing jumps to mind, and we're going to talk about our circadian rhythm. As you get older, it's hard to adjust your circadian rhythm, meaning that jet lag may have more effect on someone who's older than someone who's on the younger side. Daylight saving could be a pain in the ass for an older person, you know? But what happens to our circadian rhythm as you get older is that you become kind of a, what's that word? A morning lark, kind of like an early bird and I always kind of describe that as, well, think about if you have a, a wonderful grandma or grandpa and they're going to bed like around like what, 6 p.m. <laughs> then they wake up around like 4 a.m. But they're okay. They're functioning well at 4 a.m. You don't want to knock them down with a sedative, but they're just shifting their rhythm. And it, it's hard because next thing you know, when grandkids come over or something fun's happening, you're ready to go to bed at 6 p.m so it's hard so we always say sleep is important and man you got me all fired up and one more thing is that certain primary sleep disorders and I'll just bring this up because I have a lot of patients with this is people with obstructive sleep apnea they get sent to me whether they're symptomatic or whether they have comorbidities that require you to evaluate obstructive sleep apnea and the question becomes do i slap a cpap on my My 65, 75-year-old patient, is that going to benefit them? Is it not going to benefit them? But but Raj, Dr. Raj, they have cognitive dysfunction. They have Alzheimer's. Do do I still want to treat them with the CPAP? And these are great questions. And I think that a lot of studies are out there. And I think that my take-home message is just because you're older, just because you do have a core mobility, like some dementia to an extent, that we shouldn't just blow off treating some of these things because they are some benefits. And I can't super go into everyone right now, but this is where you should talk to your your healthcare provider, your sleep specialist to say, hey, when do I still want to be aggressive and how is it going to help for my loved one?
0: You mentioned sleep apnea. Yep. What are the warning signs? How does someone know? Oh, I, yeah, was tested, I was tested for it a couple of years ago. I went through the two night test with all, the, all the, uh, <laughs> the, the tracker sensors,
1: did not have it but how do people know? So let's talk about testing because you just brought it up. So there nowadays, there's no excuse. If you think you have OSA, you need to be tested because not every test is an in-lab study. And in-lab studies, when you have all these wires attached to your head and you have a belt around you and the ongoing joke is no one sleeps during a sleep study. But now we have Home sleep studies where you can sleep with your own bed, your own pillow. And here at USC, we let you keep the device for three nights in a row and we kind of average it, blah, blah, blah. But because there are home sleep studies, if you suspect it, boom, there's no questions asked. You should get evaluated. So, to answer your question about when do I suspect it, I'm going to take it to a dorky sense that it really depends on your age. And once again, Joe, you don't have to tell me your age, but if I'm evaluating a young pediatric patient. I'm not going to go asking a four-year-old, hey, do you have some heroic snoring? It's (laughs) going to present differently. And for as we get older, that's what I want to focus on. Studies have shown that as you get older, patients don't come in complaining of their snoring, which is the one we classically ask about for people my age. And even though I do look like I'm 29, I actually am 49. But for people who are older, It could be trips to the bathroom. That could be the telltale sign. How often are they having what they call nocturia? So there are different questions you want to ask. And even this, I'll say there's different ways that men and women present. So we could take it to a whole new level. And it's interesting that they did some data to show that clinicians, including myself, I'm guilty. We do a pretty poor job in identifying obstructive sleep apnea in women. Once again, it's because we're asking the wrong questions and they present in different ways. So for women, sometimes the way OSA can present could be depression, it could be fatigue, but it's not wrong that we're embedded about snoring. But once again, not everyone who snores has to have obstructive sleep apnea. And there are so many acronyms out there that are kind of like little ways to remember all the different characteristics. And I think one of them out there is called stop bang and S and stop stands for snoring and they all kind of go on. So of course we're kind of focused on that, but definitely think a little bit outside the box. Age plays a factor, gender plays a factor in how you're gonna present. But yeah, I would say before anyone just says, that's just some snoring, don't worry about it. Please, please get evaluated because it definitely changes your management. And bottom line point is, if you have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, that's definitely going to be a risk for your own health for a variety of the reasons that we talked about, the poor quality sleep. And there are things out there more than just slapping a mask on your face (laughs) to help treat it nowadays. I wanted to mention that. So what's your
0: opinion and experience with different tracking devices where people can get data on their
1: sleep? Wow, awesome, awesome question. Technology is one of those double-edged swords (laughs) where, of course, we're not gonna escape. It's always gonna be there. But I think the people slash disease I wanna talk about are people who suffer from like chronic insomnia. Of course, that's a big chunk of what I see. And when you have a sleep tracking device, number one is that I think that nowadays, there's one thing I do like from a sleep tracking device, which is going to be, what is the rough estimate of what we call your total sleep time? I think that's kind of cool. But then next thing you know, they're like, let me break down your stages of sleep. Here's your N1 and two, and here's your REM. I'm like, really? When I do an in lab study, I have what we call EEG to kind of look at the brain waves to kind of see what stage I'm in. And I'm sure all these devices has some proprietary algorithm how they do it, but honestly, I don't take it to that level. Also, when you think about who uses this, once again, people who have traditionally insomnia, and you know what goes hand in hand with insomnia, anxiety, next thing you know, someone comes in and even though they're doing well, they'll put this phone right in my face and say, look at this number, Dr. Raj, 69. That's the percent I got last night. And what do you do? It gives you more anxiety and you start doing things that make your sleep actually worse. For example, tonight, I'm going to bed earlier. I'm not leaving this bed till I hit eight hours of sleep or God forbid, where is the wine? Where is my Jack Daniel? I'm going to go to bed earlier. (laughs) So I think that we're going to have to roll with the punches. I think that technology is there and it's crazy town. I mean, I'm not just talking, I'm showing you my phone, but people have all these bracelets and I'm sure you've seen these rings that people wear on their fingers. And yeah, I think they're called Aura rings or something. Aura rings. Yeah. And they're not cheap. They're like $300, $400. So I would say that when it comes to technology, there is definitely a role for it. I think I'm embracing it more and more. But definitely you want to talk to your healthcare provider about how is that going to incorporate in your treatment plan. So great question right there. So what advice would you offer people
0: with insomnia?
1: Well, number one, when we talk about insomnia, it's how do we divide it? How do we categorize it? I think there is people having acute insomnia, and that's everyone. then there's chronic insomnia. And a lot of the questions I get during podcasts, during interviews, is really focusing on chronic insomnia that's going to be difficulty initiating sleep, maintaining sleep. And of course, what happens during the day? People always ask me, what am I aggressive about treating chronic insomnia? Well, if it's affecting you during the day. If you want a gold medal, a Pulitzer Prize, 4.0 GPA, and you're sleeping six and a half hours, you're not my target audience. I'm really worried about people who can't keep a job. They're missing... Their appointments, they're grouchy during the day. Those are the ones I want to focus on, daytime symptoms. So, according, there are many different ways to define it. I like to use what's called the ICSD3, the International Classifications of Sleep Disorders Edition 3. And you got to have symptoms at least three days a week for three months to be considered chronic in nature. So my advice is always the cornerstone therapy of insomnia is three letters. C-B-T, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, specifically for insomnia. And cognition is always going to be your, your thought process up there. And we could spend some time talking about what do you believe, what are going to be your realistic expectations, things that don't relate to sleep. Well, how can we address those? These be your behaviors, your actions. And the two actions that I always kind of mention, because it, it's relatable to many people, is number one, something called stimulus control. And if your listener's like, what is that? Well, in summary, it means the bed is only meant for one thing. And uh, Joe, what is the bed meant for? I'll let you answer this. I would say
0: sleep. There are some other things that come to mind, but sleep, <laughs> sleep, no TV, maybe some different athletic type of events.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so if you can't, it, you've got to condition yourself when your body sees the bed that it's like, hey, this is sleeping time. It's nothing for anything else. Stimulus control. Sleep restriction is the other thing I wanted to mention under behaviors, which is basically set bedtime and set wake time. The anchor point is usually going to be the morning. And you really want to go to bed when you're ready to sleep and fall, can be able to fall asleep within that 15 to 20 minute zone. And it's really hard to be consistent because there's Friday nights, there's weekends, there's holidays. And it's really hard to be in sync with good sleep, but really easy to really get out of good sleep when you just have one really rough night so those are very important c b t is also about relaxation, so I'm all about some yoga and like I'm not telling you to yoga it up and be all sweaty and, and right before bed, but some nice meditation yoga, muscle relaxation, some breathing techniques, all of those kind of wrapped together combined with some of the other things you're doing is really nice and really my take-home message for everyone is that sleep hygiene, we all could use a little better sleep hygiene, but sleep hygiene in itself is not a therapy for insomnia. It has to be combined with this cognitive behavioral stuff. But sleep hygiene is basically, hey, the room needs to be in the cooler side, the darker side, the quieter side. Don't drink alcohol before bed. Don't drink a lot of caffeine closer to bedtime. And of course, you alluded to this, hey, If you can, easier said than done, put that technology away from you as much as possible. So we all could really benefit from that. So I really pound that home or pound home that point first before I even open up the box of, hey, let's talk about sleeping aids instead of hypnotics. I really truly do feel that most people, not all people, don't want to be on chronic medications. And I never want to give the impression that I'm a drug pusher. Here are the pills definitely they're out there and definitely some people need it. But I definitely feel that CBT, I can't say it enough, is the cornerstone therapy.
0: So what are your best practical tips on sleep hygiene?
1: Yeah, I would say it starts off with saying sleep is very individualized. And that's why I'm I'm always very cautious when I give broad tips, especially, man, a lot of newborn Parents with newborns love to ask questions about it. And it's so hard to say this is how you do things because everyone is different, a different living situation, and same with sleep. But I think what I wanted to, how I I do want to address this question is something that will make your listeners kind of like, cool, that was an awesome pearl, is that, well, how do some people get insomnia and some people don't? I think that's a cool topic. So there's something called the three Ps of insomnia. And what does the P stand for? Well, let me mention it in the flow of this answer. So why are some people getting insomnia, some aren't? Well, some people are predisposed. And you don't know who is predisposed until it happens. That's what stinks. And what is one of the questions I ask my patients is, number one, is there a family history of insomnia? That could be a tip right there. My mom, everyone on my mom's side, I wish there was a gene I could study or look up, but there isn't. And that's why when there is some kind of event that happens that some people develop insomnia from it, some people don't. So the first thing is being being predisposed. The next thing is going to be a precipitating event. And what are usually the precipitating events? It's a life-changing event, whether it's going to be a wedding, whether it's a divorce, whether it's going to be, as far as I'm concerned, I see all the time, something tragic is happening in the hospital. Mom is put on the ventilator, Dad just got diagnosed with cancer. So of course. And so we have the people who are predisposed, we have the precipitating event. And of course, when you finally, hopefully deal with that precipitating event, the insomnia should go away in theory, but for some, it carries on because they do the last P, which is they perpetuate the insomnia. So when we talk about perpetuating, what could that be is going to be that example. I said, well, tonight I'm going to go to bed four hours earlier. Tonight, I'm going to go for a sleeping pill. I need some of that alcohol. And it makes insomnia worse. And I brought this up because when you talk about CBT, or at least when I talk about CBT, why do we do this? It's not to affect the first two Ps. I can't, CBT doesn't affect who's predisposed to insomnia. CBT can't help your precipitating event. You're going to get divorced no matter what. But what does it help? is the perpetuating things. That's where CBT really takes place. I wish CBT was, you snap my fingers and you get it, but it's usually around six sessions, around 20 to 30 minutes per session. And I wish every doctor did it, but it's not that easy for a variety of reasons. A big thing happening now is uh, technology. So many people are using apps. There were some studies to show that guided CBT through an app could help out, but once again, it's a double-edged sword because now you have your phone around bedtime and you're watching something on the phone. <laughs> but definitely my take-home message is always gonna be this, is that sleep is so essential. Are you getting good quantity, good quality? You have to bring it up. And sometimes I wish I, when I'm not wearing my sleep hat when I'm wearing my pulmonary hat or general internal medicine hat. I wish I always remembered to bring up sleep and sometimes I don't and that's where you as a patient need to embrace that and mention it to your doctor so they can talk about what is your concern what is your question and at least can guide you in the right direction for some CBT instead of just going right to Walmart or Walgreens or whatever it is and picking up melatonin on the way out so that's going to be my tips for how to start in addressing some sleep issues And CBT, not CBD. You know what? I always have to make sure I pronounce the T correctly (laughs) because, and let me tell you something. This is true, too, so sorry. So melatonin is actually the second most common over-the-counter product people grab right after multivitamin. And there's an epidemic of melatonin in like our country. And it's really sad that there have been a, a few cases where maybe kids may have overdosed. And you're like, how did that happen? is because what do they look like? They're freaking sour patch looking gummy bears and they'll just eat them and eat them. But why did I bring this up? Is that there were a couple cases where you know what else kind of looks like a sour patch gummy melatonin? CBD. And some CBD has melatonin in it and you never know who grabs it at your house. You've got to, got to be careful. And once again, or not even once again, let me just say melatonin is not about the dose. It's about the timing. Combining it with things like CBT. So just don't be popping melatonin left and right. Okay, everyone? Great
0: advice. Dr. Raj, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Great, great information and really appreciate your approach and your commitment to teaching others.
1: Oh, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me here and take care.
0: Time for takeaways ideas you could put into action following this podcast with Dr. Raj today. Number one, what happens at night? affects what happens during the day so why not use the change in seasons to adjust your routines pay more attention to your sleep hygiene so that you can be at your best I think that's the big takeaway from this conversation is that sleep really affects so many things but there's a lot we can do about it we have more control over it than perhaps may think number two getting some complaints about snoring well as he said get evaluated get tested for sleep apnea. You'll be glad you did. Number three, if you're having trouble sleeping, as he recommends, see a specialist. See a medical provider. Inquire into cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. My mission is to help you retire smarter by focusing on the non-financial aspects of planning for your life in retirement and to help you bring more imagination to your retirement planning. You can see all of our episodes, 235 of them across six seasons in our website, retirementwisp.com. You can browse a number of great guests like Dr. Raj and interesting topics.